You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. All right. Well, I'm excited. I'm excited to preach. I am uh, fresh off of a trip to New Orleans. I was there all week, got some really good food, and uh, some po' boys, and some char-grilled oysters, glory to God. So I'm, I'm ready to go, man, I'm fueled up. We're in our series here that we've been doing in the fall. We're, we're, we're doing a series all the way into Advent, um, kind of anchoring ourselves in the book of Colossians, looking at some of the pivotal passages of Colossians, And really the common theme of this series is how we think. We're talking about being disciples of the mind. That's where discipleship starts, with your thought patterns. And uh, so this sermon is really going to crank that up with this particular theme. The title of the sermon, as you can see on the screen, is Here Comes the Sun. It comes from a famous song that was written and performed by our rescue dog back home, George Harrison. And we're really proud of George and all of his accomplishments. Uh, So let's look at our passage. We're going to be at the end of chapter 1 here in Colossians. We've got a few verses that we're going to read, beginning in verse 27. I want us to, um, I'll make a couple little comments here along the way, but we're going to look at just a few verses. And then we're going to pray at the end of reading this passage before we jump into it. Colossians 1, verse 27. To them, and, and in the context, he's talking about the people of God. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches. Everybody say glorious riches. The glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's in you. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. That's the bullseye for Paul right there. That's the bullseye. He says, to this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. The word there in the Greek for powerfully, it's uh, dunamis. It's where we will eventually form the word dynamite from. He's saying Christ is this dynamic force inside of me. And then last verse, we're going to look at chapter two, verse one. I want you to know how hard I am contending. There's that word again, how hard I'm contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. Now let's pause, pray, kind of focus our attention and hearts upon the Lord before we begin. Heavenly Father, Thank you for this text. Thank you for these truths. Above all, Lord, I'm grateful that you're here and you're at work in us. As best we know how, God, we yield this moment to you, our time, our focus, our attention. We set aside any kind of distraction that would take our eyes off of you and distract us from hearing what you want to speak to us Lord, I pray that you would speak through me 
and to each one of us, Lord, deep within our hearts. Let your kingdom be established in this place in Jesus' name. Amen. So twice in this passage, Paul talks about how hard, how strenuous he's contending. He's putting everything he has into this goal of his. In fact, um, the Greek word for strenuously, it's the Greek word agonizomai. It's where we get the word agonize, agony from. It's this intense exertion of effort and energy and force. Paul's saying, I'm, put, I'm putting 100% everything I have into what I'm doing. But he says, even while I'm strenuously working and contending, I'm doing it because Christ is in me exerting this dynamic force of energy. So there's this living connection. There's this symbiotic relationship. Christ is powerfully working in him and he's letting that same grace and force and energy flow out of him through his own efforts. This is what Paul describes as the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. For Paul, this is not a cute little saying. This is not just a nice theological thought to reflect on. This was a, a living, experienced reality for him. There's this mutual partnership in contending for the sake of the gospel. Christ in me and this working its way out through my own energy and effort and, and, and my own working for the kingdom. It's a bit like this, if I would illustrate it. You know, we're sitting in this room right now and... We're enjoying the benefits of the power of electricity. Because of the power of electricity, we have lights on in this room so that I can see you. We have air conditioning, you know, which a month and a half ago would have been absolutely essential with the heat wave. We even have a sound system so that I can speak through a microphone so that I can even talk really low and those in the back can still hear me. So I don't have to strain my voice with everything I say. We have the capacity to even record the audio from this service and utilize it in our podcast that we can put out and anybody in the world can listen to it. And tomorrow we will stream our services live, video and audio, so that people can watch it anywhere they are in real time as we're worshiping in this very room. The power of electricity has absolutely transformed this context. But in order for us to enjoy what the power of electricity does, that power has to flow through a grid, through a structure that is made possible by human work and effort. If you walk out of this building, there are telephone poles with telephone wire that are stretched and the power of electricity flows through that conduit so that it can transform this experience, this context. Without that structure and without the elbow grease that went into putting that structure in place, we wouldn't be able to benefit from the power of electricity. Now, it's not the electronic grid itself that generates the power. It's the power of electricity itself that transforms this context. But without the grid, without the structure, without the human beings who dug holes and planted poles and stretched wire, we wouldn't be able to benefit from it. So it's both and. It's, it's the strenuous contention of human effort fueled by the very power of electricity. I think the same thing is true of our relationship with Christ. 
We read in the Sermon on the Mount that Christ has come to give us a, a, a kind of life where we consistently love our enemies, where we consistently forgive our transgressors, and we're working relentlessly to see what is right and just happen in our lives, and, and where we're able to consistently be patient under hardship. Well, that is a kind of life you cannot generate on your own. You cannot and will not live that kind of life consistently on your own. That's something that only the power of God makes possible. But the power of God needs a structure to flow through. And see, that's where the, 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 the spiritual disciplines come into place. These spiritual practices, we talk about them a lot here. Having regular practices of prayer and, and gathering in worship and community with believers, encouraging one another, reflecting on the word, sitting with Jesus in the quiet moment of the day. These kinds of regular practices are like digging holes and planting poles and stretching wire. And it's through those disciplines, through that grid, through that structure, that the power of God now has something to flow through. God's not going to zap you with a lightning bolt, spiritually speaking. That sounds exhilarating, but it's unrealistic to expect that on a daily basis. And it's eventually going to burn you out. You need a structure that, that can sustain that the power of God can sustainably flow through every day that empowers you to actually live the way Christ has called you to live. So there's this symbiotic cooperative relationship, Christ in me exerting this dynamic force, and yet, as Paul says, we must strenuously contend. And it's that kind of cooperative partnership that the kingdom of God expands in. We see this spelled out in other passages. For example, look at Philippians 2. Verses 12 and 13, Paul says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation. Now, just notice he doesn't say work at your salvation, because salvation is not something that you generate. You don't, you don't generate that. That's something God does. God saves and redeems and restores. God's the one who does that. And yet, as God does that, we're responsible for working that out into the extremities of our lives, our thought patterns, our behavioral patterns, our relational efforts. We work that out. So he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But notice, the very reason they can do that, verse 13, he says, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So we see two things here. There is a role that you and I play because God is not a coercive God. God will not force you. God invites and he welcomes and he beckons and he pleads. But there's a role that you're to play. And yet the only reason we can even do that is because Christ abides in us, working so that we can will and act according to his good pleasure. When you say yes to Jesus Christ, when you pledge yourself to Christ, the scriptures teach us that the very spirit of God comes and takes up residence in you. The one who said, let there be light, 
the one who spoke the stars into existence, the one who right now sustains every molecule that exists, the one who is himself pure light, pure love, pure joy, that God dwells on the inside of you. And whether you feel it or not, whether you think it or not, whether you're aware of it or not, whether you sense it or not, God is working in you. Now, again, we have to cooperate with that work, but God is constantly at work in you to, to, to move you towards healing, to bring transformation, to move you in the direction of Christ's likeness. But God is not only working in you, God also wants to work through you so that you now can become an agent, a conduit of God's healing, transforming, saving, redeeming work in the world. But it begins with this mystery that, that Paul says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus describes it like this. He says, um, whoever's thirsty, come to me. You'll never thirst again. And whoever comes to me, he says, the spirit will be given to you. And he says in John 7, out of your most innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So because the Holy Spirit lives in you, now there's this endless, bottomless reservoir of what Jesus calls abundant life. It's the river of God's abundant life, his holy life, his joyful life, his peaceful life. And that is given to you. It's within you. The one who never worries, is never anxious, is never tires, who never fatigues, that God is abiding in you right now. It's this endless, bottomless reservoir. Praise God. And our job is to let that river flow through our thinking, through our attitudes, through our actions, through our collaborative efforts, so that this living water within us flows outward and begins to cover this parched desert of a world that we live in. Amen. Now, now here's the thing. You may be sitting here tonight listening to me and reading along with me, and you may be thinking, Ryan, all of that sounds great. And I believe it. You know, when, when, when Paul talks about these glorious riches that we have, when he talks about Christ exerting this powerful dynamic force within us. And, and as you talk about these, this endless reservoir of abundant life and joy and peace that, that comes, that dwells on the inside of us, Ryan, I agree with all of that. It all sounds wonderful, but you might be saying or thinking to yourself, even though I believe all of that, I don't always experience that. Like, I don't feel like Christ is in me, this powerful, energizing force. I, I, don't, I don't always experience that. I don't feel like there's this bottomless reservoir of living water within me. I just don't feel that way. You might be thinking, actually, I kind of feel dry. I feel empty. I feel dead. I feel actually kind of thirsty spiritually. And so even though I believe all of this in my mind, it's not a lived experience. It's not a living reality for me. And I just want to be honest with you. I don't, I don't think I've ever met a single person in my life for whom this is always a living reality. We all have at least moments, at least seasons in our life where we may believe this intellectually, but this is not always our experience. And the question I want us to reflect on tonight is why is that the case? So... Not long ago, probably about two years ago, I remember Carrie and I were boarding a plane. I, I, it was, I believe we were taking off in New Orleans. I can't remember what, where we were going. But we were going to board a plane in New Orleans 
to fly out. And uh, I, I just remember this particular day. It was one of those cold, dreary winter days where it's overcast, like maybe a cold front was blowing in or something, and the whole sky is just dark and gray, and it's chilly, and there's like this misty rain, and it's just nasty, and one of those depressing winter days. And as we're in the plane, the, the airplane starts to fly down the, well, it starts to roll down the uh, tarmac, and it gets to the runway, and it starts to pick up speed. It lifts off the ground, and we start ascending into the sky, and within a few moments, we ascend right into that thick cloud bank. And you look out the window and it's just white. And the plane starts to shake. And then after a few seconds, after a few moments, you know, all of these windows are open in the airplane. After a few moments of being in the midst of that cloud, boom, the aircraft just fills with light. And you look out the window and there's the sun just shining perfectly and beautifully. And it was almost like the vibe in the airplane just completely changed. It's like, oh, there it is. And you could even feel the warmth through the window. It was like, it was almost like a sigh of relief. There's the sun. It hasn't gone anywhere. There it is. And I just realized in that moment, of course, I've always known this, but you don't really think a lot about this kind of thing. But I realized in that moment that actually the sun was there the whole time. It was shining this entire time. It's just that we didn't experience it on the ground because there was a weather pattern. There, there were clouds blocking our experience of the sun. And, and you know, we all know that, like in the back of our mind, but sometimes our, even our language doesn't reflect that. We, we say things like, uh, man, where's the sun? Like, where did the sun go? I wish the sun would shine. And we speak it of as if the sun is the problem. The sun's never the problem. The sun constantly burns and shines and radiates and it never stops. The sun is actually the most stable physical force in your world. And they say this thing's been cranking out heat and light for four and a half billion years and it never varies. I mean, there's like little minor fluctuations, sunspots, little flare-ups. Those are like really minuscule, but for four and a half billion years, there's been this constant nuclear reaction in the sky that gives light and heat to everything that comes in contact with it. And this thing is gigantic. They say you can fit 1.3 million Earths into the sun. And at its core, the sun burns at a temperature of 27 million degrees. And it's been doing it for four and a half billion years and it never stops it never changes it's relentless it's constant so if we're not experiencing the light in the heat of the sun it's not the sun that's the issue the issue is there are weather patterns there are clouds that are keeping us that are blocking our experience of the sun and it actually deeply affects us physically and emotionally because we need sunlight we need the vitamin d it's healthy for us and it's essential You've heard of this phenomenon, seasonal affective disorder, I'm sure. We probably don't experience it as much here because we get more sunlight than most places around the nation. But there's different places in the nation, like in the upper Midwest, I would imagine Minnesota. You know, the, the Michaels family were, lived for a few years up there. And, and there was like probably like, I don't know, two or three months at least where the sky is just white. 
And you don't even see the sun. And, and, and science tells us that actually has a physical and emotional effect on us. It, it, it makes us grouchy. It makes us gloomy. It, and, and it can even drive a person into despair. So we need the sunlight, but we don't always get it. And if we don't get it, the problem is not because the sun has changed. Our experience is being affected because something's blocking the sun. I think this is exactly how it works in our relationship with Christ. Listen, when you pledge your life to Jesus Christ, I don't, I don't care how you feel. Here's what scripture says is real and true. The moment you say yes to Jesus, the very spirit of Christ comes and dwells on the inside of you. In fact, his spirit unites with your spirit. The very one who is the radiance of God's glory, as Hebrews 1.3 says. He, he's the radiance of God's glory. You know, the sun, when we look at it from our perspective, the sun is the brightest heavenly body in the sky. But, the, but Christ is the one who radiates the very glory of God. So we've got inside of us one who outshines the sun a million times over. We have one inside of us who is the light of the world, radiating from within us. We've got one inside of us who is this unending, bottomless reservoir of living water that wants to burst forth and quench every thirst that we have and burst out of us and quench every thirst of those around us. That's, that's what's true. That's what scripture says is real. And whereas the sun's been doing this for four and a half billion years, Christ has been doing this from before the foundation of the world. And he never changes. It never stops. He's constantly radiating with the beauty of God's light, God's love, God's joy, God's peace. It's constantly radiating. And there's nothing, there's no experience you can have that can cause that light to flicker, that can cause that light to dim or to go out. That's what the verse means when it says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He radiates with the glory of God constantly and eternally. And he dwells on the inside of us. So listen, if we're not experiencing that unending reservoir of living water, if we're not experiencing that source of light, that source of love within us, Christ in us, the hope of glory, if we're not living in that reality, the problem is not the sun, so to speak. The problem is that there are things blocking our experience of the sun. There are clouds in our mind and clouds in our heart that are keeping us from experiencing it. And listen, we live in a cloudy world. Scripture teaches us that we live in a world today that is being influenced to some degree by spiritual forces. Paul calls them powers and principalities. There are spiritual forces at work in our culture, in our lives. And as a result of that, it's like there's this cloud of deception that hangs over humanity. And this cloud of deception pollutes the very air that we breathe. I'm talking spiritually here. It's like, it's like spiritual smog. You know, a lot of you know a lot about smog if you've lived here for a long time. So you can vividly picture this. It's like this spiritual smog, and we, don't, we get used to it. We don't even know that it's there. We don't even have a picture of what it could be like without it. We just get acclimated to this smog. And all the while, the sun is shining. There's no problem with the sun. the sun. The sun doesn't waver. But our experience of the sun wavers because of all of this 
smog that we're breathing in. Some of this smog that we breathe in is cultural smog. For instance, we breathe in the cultural smog of materialism and greed and hyper-individualism. That's why Americans, on average, spend about 98% of our income on ourselves. And professing Christians do a little bit better than that. We, we spend 97% of our income on ourselves. It's the cultural smog. And we normalize it. It's normal. This is what literally everyone does. And we don't see the insanity of it. And that cultural smog blocks our experience of the sun. Some of that cultural smog that we breathe in is the smog of the normalization of violence, the rampant, unbridled sexuality in our culture. We breathe in the cultural smog of nationalism and partisan hatred. We breathe it in and we normalize it. It just becomes, this is what everybody does. This is how everyone thinks. And sometimes we even Christianize it. But all of it, so far as we internalize it, all of it becomes a cloud that blocks the sun. There are other ways that we get clouds too. You know, sometimes it's the wounds that we experience at the hands of other people. People wound us and we, we allow those wounds to fester rather than moving in the direction of healing and, and restoration and, and beginning to walk the path of forgiveness. We choose to let the wound fester and we nurse the pain. And all the while, it becomes a cloud. It forms clouds that block our experience of the light of Christ. Some of the uh, clouds we experience just come from lies that we believe about the worth of another person. Or maybe even lies we believe about our own worth and value. Or maybe lies we believe about God. You know, we've been talking about what's your picture of God. Sometimes you may, you may have a picture of God as if God's this mean old ogre in the sky. Well, if that's how you view God, that's going to block your experience of the glory of his light and his love in your life. Some of the clouds we experience just come from plain old disobedience. Maybe God is dealing with you about something. You know, God's saying, let's, let's now get serious about this addiction. Let's look, at, let's look at your alcoholism. Let's look at, you know, this habit of sleeping around with people. And God wants you to get serious about it. And come on, let's deal with it. Or maybe it's even something positive. Maybe God's calling you to do something. He's calling you to be more sacrificial with your income and partner with an organization like World Vision. And anytime we say no to God, it begins to form a cloud that blocks our experience. And the longer and more we persist in disobedience, the cloud thickens. The sun is still shining, the sun is still burning away, but we stop experiencing it because there are clouds in our heart and there are clouds in our mind that block the sun. So, what's the solution? The solution is we've got to change the weather patterns. How do we do that? Well, Paul is going to speak to that very issue a little bit later in Colossians. So look, let's look at this one more passage together. I'm getting close to bringing this in for a landing. In Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3, look at what Paul says. He says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set 
your hearts. That word set, it's the Greek word zadio. It has, it has to do with a sense of direction, a sense of movement, setting the trajectory. It's, it's like you're searching. Set your hearts, he says, the meditation of your hearts. Set your hearts on things above, above the clouds, we might say tonight. Set your hearts on things above the clouds, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, he says, set your minds. This word set is the word phroneo. It means to resolve to predetermine, to fix. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, you know, in this dreary, miserable, cold, cloudy world. He says, for you died. Everybody say died. Notice that's in the past tense. Paul's saying this has already happened. This is already true. You have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, since you're already dead, since that's true, the old you is gone and buried, therefore, put to death whatever belongs to your dead earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. So I'm going to I'm going to put Paul's words like this, and this is not how he would have put it because I'm, I'm modernizing it. But what Paul is basically telling you is this. There's an airplane that you and I can get on, that we can board, that will lift us off the ground and take us above this cloud of deception, this cultural smog that's all, all around us. There's a plane that can take you above that where you can actually begin to live in the experience of the things we're singing about and the things I'm writing about, Paul is saying. Where this is not just lyrics on a screen. This is your, your, this is your life. This is the story of your experience where, where I'm singing, you are love, you are life. You restore the broken where I'm actually experiencing that, there's an airplane you can get on that will take you there. And it has to do with what you set your minds on and what you set the meditations of your hearts on. What do you think about? What are you dwelling on? What do you fill your thought life with? That's where it hinges upon, he says. He reminds them of, of something that's already true. Your old self, that petty self, that lustful self, that cheating self, that greedy self, that self-centered self, that temperamental self, all of that is dead. Everybody say dead. That's dead. It's a fact. Now, if you, don't, if you don't think that about yourself, if you don't feel that's true, it's because there are clouds blocking your experience. There are clouds in the way. Anything in your heart and in your mind that doesn't agree with that is cloud. It's pollution. Some of, some of the lies that you're believing, some of that smog that you've inhaled, and now it's blocking the truth. And the solution, Paul said, is set your mind on things above. I'll close with this. Carrie and I, you know, we've been married for about 17 and a half years. For the first, I don't know, 15 years or so of our marriage, Carrie and I had a lot of thermostat wars. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You know, you're, you're laying down, you're sharing a room, you're sharing a bed, you're laying down in bed. And, you know, I'm the kind of person, man, I just needed a little bit of cool. I, I, like, especially if I'm in bed with a blanket on, I need it to make sense to have a blanket. So I needed a little bit cool. I, I, for me, the optimal temperature 
68, 69, 70, 71 tops, you know, and really that's too warm. So that's what I need. Carrie's not here tonight, so I'll just tell you the truth. She, she feels like she needs it about 15 degrees warmer than that, you know. <laughs> she, she, I don't know. Her blood is just different from mine. And it's, whether we're in our house, whether we're in our church, whether we're in, our, in my, my car, she's fiddling with the thermostat. And, and I just have to grin and bear it like a good husband, you know. But, you know, especially early on in our marriage, we would have these thermostat wars where we're laying in bed and, and I'm feeling like, man, it's getting kind of warm, you know. And so I'm waiting for her to either doze off or to be distracted. And I just kind of like very sneakily in a covert way walk over and just boop, 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 knock it down to 68 or something. And I get back in bed. And then, and then, you know, at some point, you know, if she hasn't dozed off, she's starting to feel, man, it's like, it's like an igloo in here. And um, so she'll do the same thing, covertly find a way. She, she's got to go down the hall or something. She comes back, she sneaks around and, you know, hits it back up. And, and we might do that two or three times. But whoever does it last, that's the one who wins. And that's what determines the temperature. See, that's the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat. A thermometer will tell you what the temperature is, but it has no authority to do anything about it. The thermostat will tell you what the temperature is, but it will also set the temperature. It will dictate, this is the trajectory the temperature is going to take, and it will get it there. That's what the thermostat is. The thermostat of your life is your mind. What you set your mind on, what you set your thermostat on, will determine the atmosphere of your life. That doesn't mean it will determine the circumstances of your life, but what you constantly think about. If I'm thinking the thoughts that God wants me to think, if I'm filling my mind with things that are true, good, noble, praiseworthy, wonderful, beautiful, if I'm filling my mind with these things, then it almost doesn't even matter what the circumstances around me are my experience is going to be above the clouds, even in the midst of deep pain and sorrow, which I will still feel and still swim around in. The broader context of that will be a deep abiding joy because I filled my mind with God's truth and I know my God is eternal and my God has the last word. Set your thermostat, Paul is saying, or get on this plane, to use the other metaphor. This is what will take your experience above the clouds where the stuff we're singing and the stuff you read actually is not just words on a page or words on a screen. It becomes a living, experienced reality in your life. And as we align our heart and our mind with truth, it releases the light. The clouds get out of the way and you begin to experience what Paul has experienced, the dynamic power of Christ in you, the hope of glory moving you in a certain direction. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.